we might as well kick off also so that we have plenty of time for questions and discussion at the end. Uh, welcome to what I realize is already the second last in this term series of seminars on complexity and systemic risk jointly organized by the 21st Century School, including the Institute for Science, Innovation Society, and the Cabin Complexity Center. I'm very pleased to uh, introduce this week's speaker, Dirk Helbing from ETH in Zurich. Dirk is, as some of our previous uh, speakers, a trained physicist uh, who has, however, uh, gone rather far afield from from perhaps how we would originally understand that uh, subject, and is probably particularly well known for the work he has done, which has caught also a lot of public attention on pedestrian traffic flow. And traffic flow, not just among pedestrians, but also among cars, traffic flows at, in biological systems and at a very broad range of scales. Dirk was involved in a project which was one of the original links to our group in Oxford called MMComNet, that was looking at measuring and modeling complex networks across domains. And that was a three-year project that uh, came to conclusion in uh, early 2009 and was the original connection between our groups. I don't want to take up much more time, and I want to give maximal time to Dirk for his talk and also to you for your questions. So I'm sure we'll hear lots of interesting things on cooperation, norms, and conflict towards simulating the foundations of society. Dirk. Yes, first of all, I'd like to thank for the invitation. I'm very happy to speak here. And as you noticed, I've been a physicist before, but I lost a little bit of interest in conventional physics already early on during my studies. And my master's thesis was already about pedestrian modeling and then my PhD on modeling social systems with stochastic methods. And then I did a lot of traffic modeling, of course, uh, at that time there were no positions for this kind of work. And uh, now I'm back to modeling social systems and what I'm presenting today is kind of first steps of what has been done in Zurich since I'm there, so work of the last two and a half years mainly, and uh, with a little bit of garnish of my previous work. And some people are using the word sociophysics. Um, I don't identify myself with this term, but anyway, it's interesting to find out that this term actually is very old, and the father of sociology, August Kahn, already came up with this word. And funny enough, many sociophysicists of today don't know this fact. Well. August Kant uh, saw that we could understand social systems in a way that uh, we could understand also natural science systems. In particular, the success of physics at that time was very impressive for him, and that's why he came up with this term. On the other hand, he was convinced that sociology would be the queen of sciences. Uh, kind of daring perception, one could say. Maybe biology is the queen of sciences these days, but uh, things are changing, of course. Previously it was physics, maybe, and could be sociology in the future. In fact, what we can say is that social <coughs> systems are 
among the most complex systems that we know of, maybe the most complex systems. And my feeling is that we may eventually move towards studying more and more complex systems. I mean, basically from physics to biology to sociology or the social sciences in general, as we manage to understand complex systems better and better. I mean, from that point of view, physics would be a simple discipline. And we know that there were quite a few obstacles in making quantitative progress in this field. And uh, that has a number of reasons. For example, there's a huge number of variables involved in social systems. The relevant ones are often unknown or hardly measurable. It's um, also difficult to make experiments for a variety of reasons, technical, financial, and ethical reasons. And then there are a number of additional factors that don't play a big role in physical systems like memory, anticipation, or decision-making, <coughs> communication, even intentions and meanings may be very important to understand social systems. And moreover, there's a nonlinear dependence of these huge number of variables that leads to complex dynamics and structures and uh, often to paradoxical effects, I should say. Now, from that point of view, linear models don't seem to be appropriate to understand social and also economic systems in many respects because these systems are full of self-organization phenomena. Emergence is uh, very important in these systems, and uh, linear systems don't show emergent behaviors. So this is something we need to take into account also when we do empirical studies. Then we have a large degree of heterogeneity. It's very difficult to separate the observed system from the observer. And there's no clear time scale separation. Everything is interwoven. So it's really very, very difficult. And there are two options, basically. Either we're trying to understand this complexity by a model, and then you would have to come up with a, a very detailed, complex model. Or, which is the approach that I'm going to pursue, we take out details of these complex social systems, try to understand them by simple models, and once we have understood these points, try to have a look at other problems of social systems, try to understand them with simple models, and eventually put these simple models together in order to understand more and more complex aspects of uh, social systems. It's not quite sure whether this method uh, will finally succeed, and uh, I see that it has limitations, but anyway, I think we can make some progress with this approach, and I'm trying to give you some examples today. So in order to encourage simple model building, I would uh, remind you of one example from physics. And as you know, um, we have had a geocentrical view of the planet motion for a long time. And so when you observe a planet from Earth, then what you find is these funny epicycles. Now, 
These epicycles can be mathematically well described as a superposition of cyclical motions, as is illustrated over here. And so from that point of view, we can come up with a mathematical description of this geocentrical point of view, which matches the observation quite well, apart from relativistic corrections, of course. But uh, one could be fully satisfied with such a description, but it's quite complicated. And it turns out that when we change our frame of reference to a heliocentric picture, then things become much simpler. And uh, we can see that uh, planets are moving on elliptical paths, and there are very simple laws actually behind that. That means within the same period of time, the connection between sun and planet is moving over areas which are the same to the same time period. Very simple laws. Um, and this is kind of the paradigm of physics trying to boil down complex phenomena to simple principles. And these phenomena can be quite complex. These are measurements over here from the accelerator, which is close, uh, I think, to Geneva. And uh, one wouldn't think that there's a simple model behind these quite complicated-looking patterns. Uh, but it appears so far that we can understand these patterns based on elementary particles that need the composition of matter from a number of particles and uh, a few interactions kinds of interactions only. And the question is, could, in principle, a similar approach be taken in the social sciences? Could we make progress over there? And what degree of abstraction is needed? And in order to encourage your intuition, I'd like to perform a small multidisciplinary experiment. So I'd like to ask a natural scientist, my name is Mark, uh, to come in front, and also I'd like to ask Peter to join. <laughs> this is the danger of collaborations. Yeah. <laughs> and now, what I'm going to do is I'm putting a paper of Felix into this folder. <laughs> I will wait the scientific determine the scientific weight of this, and I have a piece of empty paper, right? And now the question is, which one will arrive more quickly at the floor when I drop them at the same point in time? You know, the vacuum. <laughs> 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 I'm going to the paper. Yeah. Same thing, yeah. okay. Um, and this is absolutely true. Now, <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> good for your paper. <laughs> now, uh, there was actually a famous uh, guy in, in history of physics uh, who made a daring experiment and said, okay, uh, two bodies of different mass are going to accelerate in the same way and will arrive at the same time although he must have seen similar experiments before. So how could he be so daring? And so this person was 
intelligent enough to abstract from air resistance. And in order to demonstrate the difference, I now put this piece of paper on top of this. It's not fixed, please. Make sure. Maybe now, Peter, just drop it. Okay. And we'll see what happens. See, now suddenly both the folder and the sheet of paper are writing at the same time before it's been cancelled out every system. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is oh, perfect harmony between natural sciences and social sciences. The question is how can we transfer it to the social sciences? And uh, you may aware you're aware that there are very different points of view. So some people prefer to have very detailed, small narratives, and um, others prefer to have simplistic models with a few parameters only. And usually these people don't like each other too much. And there are other people who say, okay, mathematics is of no use in the social sciences. It's just not an appropriate tool. Now, um, I don't want to interfere so much into this um, a different point of views, and uh, here are two quotes. One says, all models are wrong, but some are useful, and the hope is that I can show you some useful ones today. And other people say, if you didn't draw it, and if you couldn't simulate it in your computer, you didn't explain it. Here is one of the systems I've been studying for quite some time. And uh, I will show you an observation that you can make in many cities, actually. As you can see over here, there is some order in the system. People are organizing in lanes of uniform walking direction. We call this lane formation. And it reduces the number of obstructive interactions. It increases the efficiency of the system. Somehow, it appears to be something like collective intelligence, almost. Um, for sure, it's a self-organized phenomenon, and it can be very easily understood by computer simulations based on very simple models. And uh, this is a simulation with a so-called social force model. People or particles, whatever, are entering at random positions over here, and after a short time, you see that lanes of uniform walking direction are forming based just on local interaction. What we're assuming is that people are trying to arrive at the other side of the corridor, they have some repulsive interactions, and that's it. There's no preference for the left-hand side, no preference for the right-hand side. Very simple model. Obviously, there's some symmetry breaking going on over here, some structure formation, and everything is based on self-organization. So, in some sense, a behavioral convention is established over here is some tendency of institutionalization. Uh, and uh, that's quite interesting, and I think we can learn from these kinds of systems quite a lot. Now, in economics, uh, we call these kind of phenomena invisible hand kind of phenomena. And uh, so it's interesting to ask that self-organization always works, does it lead to good results always? Now, after the financial crisis, one may be skeptical about it, and in fact, 
uh, we also find in pedestrian crowds that when the density becomes too extreme, then there is still self-indexation, but not a favorable one. Uh, what happens, in fact, is that we have a transition from smooth pedestrian flows to something which could be called a stop-and-go flow, as you can see over here. And at even higher densities, people are so densely packed that their patterns that remind of earthquakes, actually. And they're as uncontrollable. And this is the situation where crowd disasters may happen. And something went wrong over here. Let me try it again. So this is actually the area where the crowd disaster started during the hatch a couple of years ago. You can see that people are tumbling around because they cannot control their motion. They're squeezed in between other people and very difficult to keep yourself on the feet over here. So we have three different kinds of collective patterns of motion. We have transitions between these system <coughs> behaviors. And uh, this is very interesting. And uh, of course, it's interesting and important to understand this in terms of models and also to derive from that methods to prevent things happening that we don't want to happen, like crowd disasters, for example. And actually, in this case, the scientific understanding contributed quite a lot to the safety of the Hajj. And today, however, I'd like to focus on evolutionary game theory, how spatial interaction, migration, social inequality, globalization, heterogeneous preferences can change the world in surprising ways. Now, before I showed you a computer simulation of pedestrians, we assumed symmetry with respect to the left-hand side and the right-hand side. In fact, however, there is a preference for one side, as can be observed in every country, I think. In the Central Europe, people prefer the right-hand side. I'm not quite sure how the situation is in Great Britain. I've observed in Oxford Street that people stay on the right while cars drive on the left. I'm not sure it's everywhere the same. You could tell me afterwards. But anyway, um, why is this? And uh, is it something which is biologically determined? Or is it something which is determined by car traffic or not? And it seems there's all sorts of combination between the driving side and the walking side. So it's not predetermined. It seems to be a social convention. And there's actually a simple model that some of you may know. After all, Peyton Young is teaching over here in Oxford. And this is a coordination game. So let us have a look at two pedestrians. Uh, who want to get around each other. And there are two possibilities, either to debate on the left-hand side or on the right-hand side. Now, as you can <coughs> see, if both go to the right, then they will be able to pass each other. And that is beneficial. So B greater than zero would be the 
payoff if both of them go to the left. Same situation, but if one of them goes to the right and the other one goes to the left, then they stand in front of each other and we have to try again. So they're not happy with the outcome and the payoff is just zero. Now, this can be plugged in into so-called replicator equations or game dynamical equations, assuming that people would tend to imitate more successful behaviors, these would increase in number, and uh, this is described by this replicator equation over here, so this increase is proportional to the number of people who may change their behavior or strategy i, and uh, this Growth factor over here is basically given by the success of the own strategy or behavior as compared to the average success. So if uh, the own strategy is uh, more successful than average, then more and more people will take it over. So if you plug in this uh, payoff matrix above, then you get this equation over here. And we can have a look at the stationary solution where this time derivative is set to zero, and we find three different solutions, namely P equals one half, corresponding to 50% of people to one thing and 50% of people to the other thing. P equals one, which means 100% of people to one thing, or P equals zero means 100% of people to the other thing. Now, we would assume that in the beginning things are symmetrical, there's a 50-50 situation, but there's some fluctuation in the percentage of people going to the right or going to the left. And it turns out that this 50-50 situation is unstable, unstable fixed form. For that reason, the system goes away from that solution, and sooner or later it ends up in one of those stable fixed form. That means everybody will end up doing the same, and that's why we have a social convention preferring the right-hand side in Central Europe, for example. There are other examples uh, for social conventions, of course, and uh, actually I've done that already during my master uh, or diploma thesis. Now, we'll stick to this kind of game, two-person games, but you'll change the payoff metrics now. And those of you who study economics or social sciences probably know the prisoner's dilemma. And uh, in that prisoner's dilemma, I'm just uh, summarizing facts uh, for those who are from a different background. Uh, we ha have again two different behavioral options. One is to cooperate, and the other one is to defect. And now the payoffs are chosen in a way that makes it a dilemma. That means it's risky to cooperate and it's tempting not to cooperate. It means to defect or to free ride. And this is kind of a paradigm for many situations that we face in social systems. Um, now what this game predicts, if we plug in this um, payoff matrix into the same replicator equation, then what we get is that 100% of people will end up defecting or free riding. And that's been called also the tragedy of the commons. 
And uh, this is actually quite relevant for social systems because if people would behave like this, it would be very difficult to come up with social benefit system to avoid over-exploitation of environment and these kind of things. And we know the tendency of misusing social benefit systems and treating our environment badly, exploiting resources and so on. But altogether, people are more well-behaved, more cooperative than you would expect according to this model. And we can also measure that in experiments. And the question is, why is that? This is kind of the fundamental question of the, the social sciences or of society at all. Uh, why do we cooperate assuming that we would be selfish? Why do we cooperate? Because that is the basis of our society. And so a lot of people have addressed this question and there are a couple of answers uh, People have discovered that repeated interactions would be uh, beneficial for cooperation, for example, and uh, also genetic relatedness and uh, reputation effects could also support cooperation, these kind of things. But also spatial interaction. There's an important fact that we live in space and interact in space. And uh, Novak and May early on came up with a generalization of the prisoner's dilemma to a spatial setting, and here's a simulation. Um, in this simulation, everybody interacts with a couple of direct neighbors, play the prisoner's dilemma, imitate more successful neighbors, and you can see over here quite beautiful patterns. Blue corresponds to cooperation, Red corresponds to defection. You see, blue survives somehow. We're not talking about the dynamical patterns at the moment, but uh, that means that the sheer effect of spatial interaction can dramatically change the outcome. And it also means that now the representative agent approach, according to uh, which a person's behavior can be described as a reaction to an average behavior cannot be applied. Otherwise, we would have end up with the tragedy of the, comments in, uh, of the commons, and we don't do so in this spatial setting. So considering the spatial setting very important and questions also some of the models that are widespread in economics. Now, I did another thing. Um, I think around the year 2000, I, I was studying success-driven motion in space and assumed there would be two kinds of people, two subpopulations. Uh, they wouldn't change or couldn't change, but they would interact in a way that could be described by a payoff matrix. And again, people would tend towards options, and in this case, towards locations that promised to give a better payoff. And now what we find here is that starting off with a uniform distribution in space, <coughs> we would not necessarily stay with a uniform distribution of these two populations. But it could happen, in most cases it did happen in fact, uh, that there was a pattern formation 
and there were different patterns that could result from this interaction. Either we could have this segregation, very familiar for those who know Schelling's work, or we could have agglomeration, and there are actually two kinds of agglomerations, namely those where people agglomerate in of uh, different subpopulation agglomerate in different locations, and those were people with different uh, of different subpopulations agglomerate in the same place. And uh, now it took about ten years until I put the two things together. And it's also because of this institutional setting that we had that uh, kind of strongly mathematical approaches to social <coughs> systems were not very much supported at that time. So I did traffic theory at that time. And only then, when I changed to theory, I put the two things together, the game theory where people were changing behaviors according to strategic considerations, and uh, this success-driven motion where they were changing locations. And we will see that this is quite important to understand social systems, I believe. Now, mobility, of course, doesn't have to be in space. It, it could be a more abstract mobility like, uh, in social space. You could uh, move to another employer, another company, or other sports club, or whatsoever. So that would also be of course a kind of mobility, but of course it's quite simple to imagine the, the really spatial interaction that we're simulating over here. As you can see, we have some empty spaces over here because we need some space for people to move to, and we are now comparing <coughs> the two cases, namely imitation only, where people imitate better performing neighbors, starting with 50% cooperators and 50% defectors. No randomness, and as you can see, the number of free riders, the number of red sides is increasing, and then it freezes after a short time. And that's most disappointing effect. Um, if we had some noise here, um, cooperation would actually com uh, disappear completely. Uh, in the migration-only case, of course, people don't change their behavior, so we stay with a 50-50 situation, but people reconfigure. And you can see that there's a tendency of cooperators to stay together. So there's a clustering tendency, and defectors tend to at the boundaries of these clusters. Again, the situation freezes, and both mechanisms fail to increase the number of cooperators. Now, if you combine the two mechanisms, one wouldn't intuitively expect that uh, this would increase the level of cooperation. But very surprisingly, it does in a quite dramatic way as you can see over here. So now we have a majority of cooperators after a short time. And uh, this is because, basically, whenever a free rider invades a cooperative environment, 
it's beneficial for a short time, but nobody likes to be exploited. So people go away from this uh, defector, and uh, so he's losing those people he could exploit. And uh, on the other hand, cooperators form stable environments. I mean, people who cooperate are very happy with each other. That means they're not running away. That creates these stable environments. And so uh, people are earning high payoffs in many steps. We're actually not assuming um, a shadow of the future here, similar thing that could be included into the model as well, if you like. Uh, but this is a neophyte interaction, and uh, for that reason, it's particularly interesting to find this high level of cooperation. In some sense, actually, what we see here is what is one of the fundamental observations of the social sciences, that there is a social milieu effect. That means uh, our behavior is very much influenced by our social environment. And here we see the feedback between the two. So, of course, we're also influencing our social environment. So everybody is contributing to it, but through the interaction with our neighbors, it feeds back to us, and that can eventually create these stabilizing clusters. And there's another point. These social environments survive for a long time. They stay much longer than an individual contributes to them. So people are moving in and out and in and out and so on and so on. But these clusters stay for a long time. All of this is well known from social systems. It comes out in a very natural way without having to put it into the model. And things are even more astonishing. Now we're adding randomness to the system. Randomness usually would destroy patterns. I would think it's disturbing cooperation. So um, this is actually also what happens if we don't consider migration. If we only look at <coughs> imitation in the spatial person's dilemma, this time with randomness, random strategy changes, and we see it starting off with a situation where everybody cooperates in the beginning. We end up with a very sad situation where everybody free rides in the end. So everybody cheats and not a very nice world that we would end up with. The same situation occurs if we don't have strategy mutations, but uh, mutations of the location. So sometimes people now in that simulation over here are making long distance moves, random moves. And you can see also it destroys not only cooperation, but also the spatial structure. Now what would happen if we add again the success through migration? And this is shown over here. Something we didn't expect to happen. We're starting off with defectors only this time. And then we have uh, these noise effects. For a long time we stay with a majority of defectors, as you can see. But then just by coincidence, a very small cooperative cluster is forming over here. And you can see, once it's there, 
it's spreading quite efficiently. And after a short time period, cooperation has spread all over the system. That was quite astonishing. And actually, uh, when we did that, uh, my collaborator, Wenjanu, uh, he didn't, like me, by the way, also, uh, he didn't believe that would happen. So then I really had to insist uh, that he should do the simulation. I was sitting next to his computer and was waiting what would happen. And now he was already giving up. And I said, let's wait some more time. <laughs> and then actually <coughs> we found this surprising fact happening. And it, it only, not only happens in special circumstances, it always happens. So here uh, the results were many simulation runs. And what we find is there's always an outbreak of cooperation after some time. So here you can see how long it may take. This is to be taken times 10 to the power of 4 and 20,000 iterations for these very uh, difficult parameter sets that we have. So we here we can also accelerate it with other parameter combinations. Uh, we didn't want to be in favor of cooperation in our simulation. And then there is this very sudden spreading of cooperation so we reach a high level after some time. Okay, let me accelerate a little bit. Um, we have been looking at some other aspects of this model as well. The question is what, what happens if the interaction range is increased and we eventually have global interactions, would we still stay with a high level of cooperation? And the result is no, unfortunately not. Uh, success driven migration cannot avoid a tragedy of the commons if we have global interaction. Um, we have been looking at social inequality. Uh, it means people had a different level of richness somehow, and they were playing for different amounts of money. And usually we would think social inequality is not good for cooperation. But uh, there are circumstances, obviously, where social inequality can push cooperation into the area of the prisoner's dilemma, the parameter area of the prisoner's dilemma, as you can see over here. Um, and the point is actually that starting off with a 50-50 mixture in the beginning, in fact, free riders are spreading enormously in the beginning. And we have a very unfriendly social environment after some time. <coughs> but you see there are a few cooperative clusters that survive. And those cooperators which are in the middle of these clusters are making so enormous profits that uh, it is attractive for neighbors eventually to imitate the behavior of these people who seem to have uh, found the, the secret how to become rich. And so everybody wants to do the same. And eventually, al although cooperation almost disappeared, finally, cooperators are the lasting winners. We've also been looking at what happens when uh, people can kick out each other from, say, positions or jobs, um, houses, or whatsoever, not a very friendly 
situation, of course. And uh, what, what is expected is that that would disturb cooperation, and it does. So if the success of kicking out people uh, is high, then the cooperation breaks down, as we can see in this setting over here. Uh, but there is an interesting point over here, that if uh, we have no success at all in kicking out other people, um, we don't have the maximum level of cooperation in the system. And then it's quite surprising that uh, a little bit of noise over here, a little bit of success in um, would lead to altogether a better level of cooperation. And the question is, why is that? And so we have uh, done simulations with randomness, and it turns out that in these systems, depending on the kind of noise, in fact, the level of cooperation can be increased. And you may imagine it in a way that noise breaks up spatial configurations that are not optimal. So these frozen configurations that I've shown you in the beginning, they would not stay forever, and so the system could find better and better solutions. You will see another example later on. You know, we have this global warming discussion and uh, one of the questions is uh, will it end up in a tragedy of the commons or will we finally manage to cooperate? I mean, would countries cooperate? Would they come up with binding standards regarding CO2 emissions? Would they reduce them? And would uh, the people in these countries contribute to these goals? And so we have looked here at another situation uh, where we play actually the a social goods game which is similar to the prisoner's dilemma. It's, it's also a social dilemma situation where we took into account uh, the effect of punishment. Of course, it's known that uh, punishment could uh, support cooperation. However, punishment is costly, so we have to spend an effort. And uh, for that reason, it's not clear why people would actually punish other people. Of course, those people who don't punish have a higher payoff. And given people are selfish, then why, why should uh, people end up punishing those who free ride or defect? Now, when we do a simulation with the replicator equation that doesn't take into account spatial interaction or which reflects kind of well-mixed interactions in space, then we actually find the situation that cooperators are eliminating eventually cooperators who punish, which we call moralists over here. And once these moralists the cooperators who do punish, once they're eliminated, then the defectors can spread at the cost of the cooperators. So it's kind of a real tragedy that the cooperators are eliminating their friends and finally uh, are eliminated uh, by defectors. And um, however, if we play <coughs> the same game with neighborhood interactions, then what we find is a very different kind of dynamics. And 
I can show you this. So in the beginning, again, the defectors spread, and again, the minority, minority, uh, majority, but as you can see over here, eventually blue, which corresponds to cooperators, take over, and finally it's the moralists, the cooperators who punish, who have the majority. And this is because in a spatial setting, cooperators and moralists are not competing directly with each other. They're actually separated, as you can see, by the detectors. And uh, the point is that the moralists can overcome the defectors, and the defectors can overcome the cooperators. So in the end, by this uh, interaction of three strategies, together with the agglomeration and segregation in space, moralists can take over in situations where they couldn't do so without spatial interaction. There are very interesting other phenomena in this game, depending on the parameter combination, so there could be an unholy symbiosis of moralists and immoralists. Just showing you a simulation to see how, how funny that is. Uh -huh. Okay, five minutes. So I, I'm hurrying up a little bit. So here is a f uh, phase, here are four phase diagrams for different parameter combinations. The main point that I'm trying to make over here is that we can actually have quite different systemic outcomes depending on the parameter combinations, and there can be transitions between the different systemic states. So there are situations where cooperators and defectors coexist. There are situations where punishing defectors and punishing cooperators coexist, and so on and so on. And uh, so we have a quite rich situation. And this is actually probably one of the reasons why it's so difficult to understand social systems, that the same system can sh show such a variety of different outcomes, depending on what particular parameters you have. And in many cases, the parameters are hard to measure, actually. So it's quite confusing. If you just see the different outcomes, you would think this is not consistent with each other. How could that be understood by one theory? But in fact, it can be. And here is another example, as I promised you, um, that shows that a little bit of randomness can actually be beneficial. We're showing here the competition between cooperators and cooperators to punish. And it takes a very, very long time, actually, until a slight majority of moralists can take over and finally dominate the world. However, if we introduce a little bit of mutations, so um, defectors would be created from time to time, just a few ones. It turns out that this enormously accelerates, actually, uh, the success of the moralists. And so it's actually the existence of bad guys, you know, the free riders, a few. And there's only a few free riders that can enormously accelerate uh, the triumph of uh, moralists. And that is quite surprising. And uh, probably can, we can observe it actually in the political agenda. It's a, a situation that is 
happening quite. Now I promised to talk also about social norms. And so what we have been looking at is another situation where we assume two populations. Each population had a different preference. I mean, one population prefers behavior one, the other uh, population prefers behavior two. However, there's also a benefit of doing the same thing as your neighbors do, or your interaction partners do. And now, depending on the payoff for doing the preferred thing, or uh, for conforming with the interaction partner's behavior, we find different outcomes. But it does not only depend on <coughs> these parameters, but it also depends on the strengths of the population. And so what you find is that there are parameter areas where everybody tends to show their own preferred behavior, but also other situations where one population takes over the behavior of the other population, although it prefers to do something else. So a social norm is established. Uh, this is happening many times, and uh, social norms are very important, also in economics and law. And uh, it is interesting to find out what are the settings that would establish certain norms. What turns out is that even minorities can be successful in establishing uh, the prevailing norm. If they are well organized, if they uh, stick to their preferred behavior and uh, the, the bigger population doesn't so much, then there is a chance for them actually to take over. Uh, we can see how the outcome depends on the initial support in the population and there is an area where one population went through and the social norm is established, but also in between there is an area where, where everybody still does what they like. Um, now we can even understand uh, the formation of local cultures within this model. I'm showing you at least one simulation relating to this. So what you see is that eventually we have areas we have red and yellow, um, which means that um, people of one population adjust to the behavior of their neighbors. And uh, we have other areas, we have green and blues. In that situation, the other population actually sets the norm. And this is well known uh, from a variety of different things, starting from languages uh, to, to food and uh, all sorts of cultural behaviors. Now the interesting thing is that the model that we have assumed describes actually an even larger range of phenomena. And these are the four dif uh, different cases that we can find. Breakdown of cooperation, uh, the formation of shared behavioral norms, or the behavior of subcultures that means each population would come up with a known norm, but they wouldn't coordinate among each other, and there could be polarization. And here is actually a representation that shows how rich the behavior of this simple model can be. This model actually only requires two parameters, but still shows all these 
different behaviors over here. And there are even sudden transitions of system behavior when we change the parameter only a little the stable fixed point changes from this line to that line, so it jumps abruptly, <coughs> and it may actually be a chance to understand this as a revolutionary transition. You will see <coughs> in a second this is jumping up here, so there is really a dramatic change in the system by just a small change in the parameter. Okay, so I think I should summarize here um, by saying that I think that simple models can produce complex behavior and promise to gain surprisingly interesting insights into the mechanism underlying social systems. Um, linear models are not suitable to understand emergent self-organization phenomena. Uh, the representative agent <coughs> approach is not it also to understand the spatial interactions. And very important to take time-dependent spatial interactions heterogeneity into account. If we do that, we naturally understand certain kinds of phenomena that we observe in our social and economic environment. And among the puzzles that can be resolved is, first of all, the higher level of cooperation than classical models predicted uh, the victory of second-order free riders over cooperators, uh, the co-evolution of social environment and social behavior, and so on and so on. And uh, there's even a unified model that describes quite a number of different cases. Um, yeah, so from my point of view, this is just a start. Uh, it's a simple simple model, of course, it has to be found out uh, how well it relates to reality. We're planning to do experiments in laboratories with experimental subjects. And uh, also we're going to generalize the modeling approach by many other aspects that have been left out over here, such as social network structures, um, shadows of the future, trust and reputation, all these kinds of things could be added to this model are equally important. Altogether, we have to get to a situation where we can actually understand much more complicated social systems and phenomena. And in particular, this financial crisis reminds us that we really have to make progress in understanding these systems. Uh, Columbia University's president formulated the situation as follows. The forces affecting societies around the world are powerful and novel. The spread of global market systems are reshaping our world, raising profound questions. And these questions can only be understood by academic approaches. And it's very important, actually, in order to avoid future policy failures. And for that reason, we are trying, together with many colleagues, I should say, we are trying to elaborate lists of grand challenges that have to be addressed. Here is a list of practical grand challenges. There are other lists that we are creating, which consists of 
theoretical or fundamental grand challenges. And of course, first, the fundamental grand challenges have to be solved in order to be able to address the practical ones. And uh, it is obvious that this cannot be done by a single research team, even if it's a big one. So that is an effort that requires the collaboration of maybe hundreds of scientists, I would think, um, on a global scale and across disciplinary boundaries. And so I'm trying to push forward together with many colleagues from different sciences, sociology and economics, physics, mathematics, computer science, a joint effort uh, towards a large-scale uh, acceleration of social economic knowledge in order to get into a situation where we don't have these sad numbers in future. One problem, I think, is that uh, actually we, most of the time we notice social sciences when we have a finish, you know, when there is war, when there is a financial crisis, when there is a problem. And the question is, are there any examples where we could actually demonstrate that it's good for making money rather than avoiding a catastrophe? It would be already good to avoid catastrophes, but you know, whenever we write proposals uh, for the European Union, they want to know, okay, how much money is this going to generate? And uh, this is always a problem. And uh, here's actually one example that I want to show you in the end of this presentation. We have been inspired by the self-organization of pedestrians to come up with a new kind of traffic light control which is based on self-organization, kind of social interactions, local interactions, one could say. Now, at bottlenecks, we can find that there is an oscillatory behavior of pedestrian flows, and this is like there was a traffic light. And so we have transferred that principle uh, towards traffic light control. I could go into detail, but there is not much time. We even applied it to a practical system which is the center of Dresden, where the current traffic control approach doesn't deliver satisfactory results. And what we find, finally, is that this approach can do better than the best current established approaches. That means it's good for public transport, for motorized traffic, and for pedestrians. All of them would have shorter waiting times based on the kind of social kind of organization of the traffic system. And I think that can actually be transferred to other systems as well, including production and logistics and so on. And actually any system uh, which is complex, which has heterogeneous elements, which has a large degree of fluctuations and short-term predictability, because in this situation, it's very important to be able to flexibly react to the actual situation. And uh, real-time optimization of these systems is usually not possible. So social mechanisms can outcompete the classical optimization paradigm. And that's where I think engineering sciences can actually learn from sociology. Thank you very much.